Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Hi Marjorie. Hey Claire, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I've got a big piece of cake. All of you out there will be glad to hear we're back on the cake for breakfast in this house. Given that it's birthday week in our house, we're going to make another one for tomorrow too. You turned down the cake yesterday, Claire. Yeah, well, we had uh, managed to have a socially distanced cup of tea yesterday, didn't we? On a picnic rug in your garden. I was there on official open book business to get some paperwork signed, but we took advantage to set opposite ends of a picnic rug in the sunshine and have a cup of tea. And you did offer me cake, but we've had a lot of cake this week through various school food technology challenges of baking <laughs> things that had to be done for homework so actually by the time I got around to you yesterday afternoon I was thinking no another bit of cake is <laughs> not what I want right at this moment. How can we even be friends that you're the kind of person that would ever turn down cake I don't know how we ever became friends it's good that this this sort of habit or quality of yours didn't come out in the early years because we may never have started open book we couldn't just not be here today if I discovered you were the kind of person that would turn down cake. So here we are with another podcast. I can't believe it. And we're getting to read more of the beautiful commissioned work. You're going to get tired of hearing us say that by the 11th piece. But uh, we're on to piece number two, which we're really excited to share with you today by Sean Bevan, who is also one of our amazing lead readers. We'll, we'll crack on into that in a minute, but we're also going to finish off with one of Elizabeth Bishop's poems called One Art. Do you want to start us off? Sure, yeah. Essential. Sean Bevan. Only go out for essentials. That was the advice. There was a lot locked into those five words. As I sit in the kitchen and try to work out what is actually essential, I check with the version of me who tries to look after this one. The version of me who's prim and worried and who pinches my arm when we talk too loud, but who strokes my hair when my heart is sore. We write a long list together, long and meandering, past ideas like love and friendship and power walking through goals and ambitions. These are just ideas. You can live without ideas. She's talking in that soothing voice, which means I cross things off my to-do list before I've done them so I can sleep better at night. She can feel me tense up, and look at my empty hands and empty diary and sighs because she knows the conversation isn't over yet. I suppose, dear, it depends on how long we're talking about, doesn't it? And then we draw a house which we don't live in, nestled on a street which we've only seen in the movies, trying to imagine what the bare bones of a life could look like. The walls and foundations are made of things to keep us alive. Food, water and shelter, she trills. I argue for justice. And we decide that's too complicated and leave it on the lawn, broken and ejected like a washing machine which shames this nice neighbourhood. We grow a garden and debate about whether it's a space to share or a space for us. And we decide what we need is a path. A clear, neat path. And we will choose what comes down it and what goes up to our nice new red door. Will I stop there? Yeah, perfect. I love the red door. I just have to say right now, whenever I have a chance to paint a door, 
in my life so far. I've always painted it red. I think we should say as well about this beautiful story that it's written in a really interesting way. So if you get the chance to look at the newsletter, you'll see it set out how Shan has set it out. And uh, the words, nice new red door form a path in the story. I'm used to seeing form and thinking about it in the context of a poem. It's really particularly lovely to see it in the context of prose, her using the way it sits on the page and the space on the page as part of the writing, the gaps, I would say, as part of the writing. Um, Here's my question. Who's the she in here? At first, I thought maybe it was a partner, but I'm not sure actually now. Who's the she and who's the narrator or who's the person giving ideas? Well, there's two people in the beginning of this story. So who's the other one? Is that not her inner voice? Yeah, I thought that. But then you think the version of me who's prim and worried. Do we have inner voices that are prim and worried? Do you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of the poem that we sometimes read in open book about the mum who steps off the bus. Sharon Olds. That's right, that's the one. The similar inner voice appears in that story. In that poem, she does steps off a bus with a baby in her arms and the baby is delighted, everybody else is horrified. And she says, I've kept an eye on that nice young mother who stepped off the bus with her life in her hands. In that poem, for me, it's the inverse. It's the, the inner voice is the one keeping her restricted. And in this one, it seems like you have an inner voice that's prim and worried and pinches your arm when you talk too loud. It's kind of sad. You know, I, I want your inner voice to be the one telling you to go and do and experience and turn up the volume rather than turn it down. She's got more than one character, though, this inner voice, doesn't she? Because she also strokes hair when my heart is sore. Yeah, I would say the inner voice definitely sounds the sort of sensible, restraining one. Yeah, because even later when she's saying things like food, shelter and water and shelter and... When she argues for justice, which seems that same kind of larger than life, let's include things that are bigger and braver, the inner voice tells her it's too complicated. That translation or the, the what's happening between the two voices is very much what happens in lockdown. You know, what's happening to us in lockdown. Maybe the inner voice is the frightened one in lockdown. It's a particularly brilliant piece to be reading just now because I think there is that inner fear of going out, what we might be encountering just now. It definitely feels like lockdown is a magnification of characteristics that you might have anyway. So if you're a little bit risk averse, lockdown, I would say, magnifies that. And if you're someone who's maybe more gung-ho, your gung-hoedness, if that's a word, is magnified by lockdown because it contrasts with what other people are doing. I think I'm the latter. I have to really work to restrain my natural instinct, which is to throw caution to the wind and say, come on, we've got one life to live, we've got to go do it. But I'm really surprised at the number of people that I meet who I wouldn't have said were cautious people, who suddenly seem very cautious or very frightened. And that surprises me. It's like suddenly you can see that on the outside. I would say it's definitely made me more cautious than I would generally be. But I love, you know, that idea that she comes up with a list of things. Yeah, and that was going to be my question, you know, what goes on your essentials list? Is it if someone says to you make a list of essentials, do you automatically start to think about passport and lunch? Or is it the bigger things? Truth, justice? I'm not sure justice would come into my list, which is funny, isn't it? Passport, I think, is on my list, especially living in a country that I'm not from. I don't know what it's on your list. Oh, when I was starting to think about this yesterday, it was silly things like certain photographs, but actually they're probably on my phone. So maybe phone and charger (laughs) should be in this day and age on my essentials list. You know, years ago, I did the belonging project, which is literally bringing a suitcase into classrooms of 
children and teenagers and prisons and other places and asking them what they would put in it if they had to leave. It's a way of kind of building empathy for the refugee situation at the time or that still exists. And the suitcases are probably not that different from the one that my mum and brother and I brought out with us. You know, and it's really interesting to think about size in that case. So, you know, always starting with what can you actually fit in this? What won't fit in the suitcase? And then going to more ephemeral things like what won't fit in the suitcase in terms of the sights that you see every day and the smells and question of what would you stick in your, if you had, you know, 10 minutes, what would you put in your suitcase? Uh, which is a really interesting question. I remember working with a group in Glasgow on, on that with you, Marjorie, and the two things that stayed with me, people would put in, was the drizzle from Glasgow and football goals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, not, not necessarily the things that automatically spring to mind as being essential, but as soon as they said them, you could see why they would be so important if you had to leave a place that had been home to go somewhere else. But then, as you say, I think what Sean's getting at is what is essential to bring into our homes, wherever that might be, to make a home and I don't, you know, I really don't like that line, these are just ideas, you can live without ideas. It irks me because I think, no, you can't, you know, you can't just live on food and water. You've got to, at the very least, got to live on the idea that things will get better. So even in the worst kind of refugee situation, which is the one I always think of, of course, you know, the idea is you, even then, you need the idea that you will get to a better place to survive. It stood out as me disagreeing with it. I wouldn't say it annoyed me. Following after Prim and Worried, I kind of took it as that's just the way she thinks, you know, the inner voice thinks, and she's not right. Well, shall we keep going and see where, where this voice of the voice develops or if we like her anymore? A shiny brass handle for essential opening and essential closing, essential confinement, and essential time ticking by with a big clock in the hallway. The living room will have fresh flowery curtains and our house, our hopes and purpose and optimism and possibilities. Hush now, don't say them all out loud, child, she whispers. You'll break the magic if you tell too much. It smells of a forest after rainfall in here. We gently close the door. Across the hallway to a dining room covered in sepia photos of stories and history, so we remember what came before, what built this street we're trying to live on. It joins on to a kitchen, which always smells of nice food in the cupboards and the time to cook it. Up the stairs... Stairs indoors, she laughs, you wish, and into the bedroom, soft and kind. Wardrobes full of love and curiosity, mirrors which smile back, and a bed so soft it envelops you just for a second and says that you're okay. People could come in here to share the kindness. The bed can stretch to two, but will wrap you up warm when you're holding your own hand in the long dark night and worrying if you'll ever be loved again. That leaves the spare room with the big, strong door. Only you can carry the key to this place, she smiles, pressing it into my hand. Slide the key into the lock and find filing cabinets and lists holding all the power you need to control your tiny bit of the world. She tells me to keep guard this place, retreat here if needed, turn the lights just how I like them and study hard on how to keep this kernel of yourself safe and in control so you're strong enough to carry others when they need you. There are maps on the wall, but I don't recognise the place names. She points out a hatch to a loft with no ladder. Keep the essential things which hold you together up there hidden and safe. That's where you can put the shame which makes you kind, 
the anger which makes you strong, and the disappointment which means you know when to help. One day, when you can, visit this place with a torch and shine a light on each box, just to make sure the contents aren't rotting, and then walk away. I glance up and go down the stairs, out of the red door, and back to my actual kitchen. I show my small son the picture which I drew. Did you do this yourself? he asks. I look awkward and decide to nod. What's it about? And I tell him that it's about working out what's really important. I ask if he wants to help and hand him a pen. Draw what you think you definitely need. He stares at the blank piece of paper and then the pen and then me. When I can see the too big world reflected in his eyes, I try to tell him that sometimes you have to look to the smallest thing you can focus on and then get bigger and bigger until you can get the whole picture. He can't do anything until I draw a small box in the corner of the paper and ask him to fill it. He draws a big wobbly heart, two sweeties and a coconut. His picture would look so nice in the house we built. Oh, I don't like the voice anymore. I don't know about you. There's something really creepy about that going into the spare room and making sure things aren't rotting and then walking away. Yeah, I thought it was going up into the loft and looking at all the things that make you who you are. But I really hate the idea that you're only kind because of shame. Mm. You're only strong because of anger and that you only know how to help because you've been disappointed. I don't actually believe in that sense of people that were born in a kind of negative way, you know, that we only respond in kindness because of something bad that happened to us. There's an argument that you become less kind of kindness is not shown to you. Yeah, I hate the idea that you're only the person that you are in response or the good bits of you are only in response to something that bad that happened to you. I hate the voice that might say might suggest that to this person. The one that I find the most discomforting is the shame making you kind. There is a definitely a sense to which you can channel being angry into doing good if you do that and being strong. And and I think there it's true to say there's a certain sense by which if you're disappointed it, it, you can use that in something or you're not able to achieve something you can use you can channel that as well into you know taking a different route or turning it around to try a, a different approach or a different way but that shamefulness being the reason that you're kind it's just I find it very uncomfortable as an idea I do too and actually what I really don't like is the, the suggestion of it because even the suggestion of it sort of undermines the voice you know the person that she's she is you know so it, it feels like an undermining voice in some ways and looking back you know that idea that justice is just too complicated and you know they're just ideas it's the voice in your head that's telling you you're only who you are in response to something else and it's very hard to combat that because we never know other people in that level you can do that work yourself by unpacking who you are and where you came from and looking at the things that have happened to you that you might not wear on your your sleeve as it were but it's impossible to do that for other people Although you, you know, I quite often find myself giving 
other people the benefit of the doubt or trying to show my children that they should do that. But you never really know what's happening in other people's lives. What about this idea of the lists holding all the power you need to control your tiny world? Unlike you, I liked the idea of the spare room. I thought where she was going to go with that was you get to decide who comes and visits and you get to decide who comes into your life and you get to be generous with that if you want to be. So I was I was looking forward to people coming to visit, you know, in that way, because that's what I would want with the spare room is to end entertain and not necessarily entertain but look after other people so the idea that you fill it with all the things you need to hold your power also worries me I would say because I don't think that's where power comes from I wanted that spare room to be her retreat to be comfy and warm and have flowers and pictures on the wall and I didn't want it to have filing cabinets and power and control and guard and and I didn't like the idea there are maps on the wall with place names that weren't even recognized I would have liked that sentence if it had come somewhere else in the story, because for me it suggests kind of adventure and possibility, but not at the end of that paragraph, it doesn't. I really don't like the idea that, you know, you've only got a kernel of yourself in the middle of yourself that you have to keep in control. I think we're bigger than that. I think we're larger than life, and we have to kind of work to contain ourselves in different ways. I don't like that somewhere, the idea that somewhere in the middle of us is this little kernel that you have to shove down and box in. So I don't like that idea at all. But I particularly don't like it that you, the reason you have to keep it in control is so that you're strong enough to carry others when they need you. You're not going to get strength from a kernel of yourself shoved down in the middle and boxed in. I think, though, there are a lot of people in lockdown who might feel that they can really strongly relate to the idea. You know, like you need to hold yourself tight and strong and together because you are carrying so many people at the moment um, and supporting so many people who generally are needing more support than they would usually. I mean, I'm certainly checking in with my kids in a way that I wouldn't be were we not in this situation. I'm kind of watching them quite closely just, you know, to make sure that they're doing okay and that they're talking to me about stuff that's making them sad or that they're grieving for losses of things that would be happening now. And so I can really relate to that idea of just holding on, holding on for the moment, holding on for the moment to get them through this. Yeah, I relate to that too, for sure. What I don't relate to is the link to some kind of keeping yourself in control. I think in some ways acknowledging to children that we're, we're our, ourselves are struggling is not a bad thing, as long as we're not asking them to carry our struggles. But yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily think strength comes from control or the ability to carry others comes from a kind of control. But yeah, I agree that I'm watching children and checking that they're surviving it. I, I'm looking back at Chan's piece, though, I love, I love it when she comes through. I love the things that she says rather than the voice, you know, this narrator says, you know, the idea of having the living room with pictures of the history of the streets and fresh flowers and going up the stairs. And you all re- you get a real sense of that in her voice when she says, stairs and doors you wish. At that point, I'm ready to turn her off. And that description of wardrobes and a really soft bed and... Yeah, I love that. I love the narrator's voice here. I want I want her to win out. I want her to be beat that in her voice. The phrase that I absolutely loved in that little section is when they're talking about the kitchen, which smells of nice food in the cupboards and the time to cook it. Let's just chat a little bit about the little boy in the story as well, this idea that it's too big to take in. Um, I love that contrast between the mother who's thinking about love and curiosity and things and the boy who just doesn't know what to draw on the page because it's all too much. And I think because we know Shan and we know she has a little boy, this was the point that I thought, oh, is this Shan's voice? 
not the grumpy inner voice voice, but, you know, is this Shan and her little boy? I can imagine them sitting at a table drawing and having this conversation. Me too. Um, and Shan, if you're listening, get that woman out of your head if it is her. And if she isn't, <laughs> we don't like her. And we're here to tell her to do one marching orders <laughs> yeah exactly um but I, I don't know if it is or if she's just imagined you know that's the great thing about never knowing whether you're hearing your actual author's voice or not but I love that description of you have to look at the smallest thing and then get bigger and bigger because the world is overwhelming I mean it's overwhelming for us and more for me in my late 40s and if you try and take it all in it's just too much and I think that's been a real response to COVID I don't know about you but it just feels like it's too much too much to take it all in the whole world's coming down with this and lots of the other news around it, you know, all the other news that's been happening, it just feels like it's too much at the moment. I'm not sure that it's any worse. It's maybe just a shared experience in a way um, that the whole world's experiencing the same thing, whereas we would have had terrible disaster news. Otherwise, it's just little bits and pieces. So I love that that description of choosing the smallest thing is maybe a good advice for us grown-ups too. And I love what he draws in the end. I don't know about you, but I love what, you know, it's so often when you ask children a big question, they give you a heart, two sweeties and a coconut, you know, <laughs> straight back to the kind of, this is the level of the child, it, you know, the things that they love, the things that they can see, um, probably the coconut because it's one thing he can draw. <laughs> but, you know, I love that kind of enough with your justice and love and curiosity. What we're really talking about here are two sweeties and a coconut. Yeah, I love that idea of him asking his mom, I'm presuming. Oh, yes, she says, my small son. Did you do this yourself? He asked. <laughs> I know. And I kind of <laughs> Yeah, or, but I also remember my kids going, oh, you were a good drawer. When, you know, when they were toddlers and they say, mom, 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 you need to draw me an elephant or whatever for whatever project that they, <laughs> that they were currently doing. I would draw and then I would get, oh, you're a good drawer. <laughs> Or more often, mm, that doesn't really look like an elephant. Maybe you should try again. <laughs> My kids stopped asking me to draw ages ago because they know I can't. But I love the voice in it because for me, he's mimicking what she often says. You know how often like children will say the same thing back to you that you've been saying to them their whole lives. And it's kind of funny, but also slightly annoying. Did you do this yourself? What's it about? Is not the, you know, that's the classic parent line where you're not supposed to say that's lovely or what the hell is it? But what's it about? <laughs> um, which is really funny to me because it's actually a really good question for what she has been drawing. But you know, what's it about? Um, it seems like the kind of parenting thing that you would get. Never say, I like that red ball, but say, huh, what is this? You know, tell me about this. <laughs> and I love the last line. Yeah, that it would look nice in the house that you build. I wonder if we all sat down and like kind of did the same exercise of what would your house look like? It might be a nice thing to do actually in lockdown. I feel like we've kind of all settled a bit in some way. So it might be a nice um, kind of inventory to take of what would you put in your house as a way of thinking ahead. So there you are, all of you out there. If you do this exercise, let us know what goes into your house. And thanks, Shan. I really enjoyed that. Even though we didn't like the voice of the inner voice. It's always nice to have something we don't like in a story so that we can rage against it so she's exactly the voice that would tell you not to eat cake for breakfast i'm that just putting that correct. out there <laughs> <laughs> shall we swap into the poem uh, would you like me to read this one today yeah yeah please this is one art by elizabeth bishop the art of losing isn't hard to master so many things seem filled with the intent to be lost. 
that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day. Accept the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing further, losing faster, places and names, and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch, and look, my last, or next to last, of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster, some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent. I miss them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like, write it, like disaster. I love the sentiment in this poem that you can lose almost anything without it being a disaster. And then what you can't see when listening to this poem is that it's broken up into three-line stanzas. And there are five of them, and then the last stanza isn't three lines, but it's four. So there's an extra line stuck in there. And for me, I don't know about you, it's because she's really struggling with that idea of losing someone. Yeah, and it, and it expands. For me, it very much reminds me of, of the little boy in Shan's story having to start with the small box and work outwards we lose the, the most important thing in the, at the end and we move out to bigger and bigger and bigger. Although I'm not convinced that she's, you know, I don't think that in, in the last stanza she actually thinks that. In fact, for me, the whole poem hinges on two words, which are in brackets in the last line, in italics, which are write it, which is forcing yourself to say something that you may think you think is probably not true, to try and convince yourself of it. I don't know if you feel that. For me, she's learning to lose the small things first, you know, the things that are easier to lose, the keys. And then, you know, as you move on, losing places and names again, tricky, annoying, irritating, a bit embarrassing, perhaps, but not disastrous. Losing the watch, more heartbreaking, more heart-wrenching, sadder for her, it was her mother's watch. You know, and she's, it's almost like she's practicing losing and surviving so that when she gets to the end, she can lose the most important thing and still survive. But the language changes, so it, up until that last paragraph or last stanza, it's the art of losing isn't hard to master, and then it's not too hard to master. It, found, it sounds to me that she it is a disaster. She's trying to talk herself into that, that it isn't a disaster, but it is. And for me, this poem is telling us that underlying truth, which is you can lose everything, which is, is true for me. You can lose everything, but when you lose someone, that's the thing that you can't it was really hard to recover from, you know, when you lose a person that you love. That's the one thing, you can lose everything else. But when you, yeah, when you lose a person that you love, it is a disaster. And for me, when she's saying write it, it's because she's forcing herself to write something that she doesn't think is true. And I'm not confident that she's going to convince herself either. I don't know about you. No, I agree. I, I think she's she's trying hard. She's working at it. But again, in the last stanza, there's quite a long dash at the very beginning. And for me, that feels like her taking a deep breath to sort of enable her to say these things, to force herself. Bucking up a bit and putting on her brave face, like, a, like yeah, as you say, like a, right, now we've got to get to the really hard thing and I'm going to t convince myself. I feel I feel that someone's stealing herself, really, to say something. 
but it feels like you know comparing that to Sean's work it feels like kind of in the inverse but you know that idea that in some ways when what Sean's talking about is the same none of the things in her piece matter individually it's about the person in them so the things that I come away from Sean's piece thinking the voice there things are important are curiosity and joy and food, the time to make the food not the food itself so really there's sort of imperceptible untouchable things not the actual objects there's nothing in particular that she said i really need a you know the, the flowery curtains don't jump out as me as being really needed if that makes sense so in some ways it, it has a really beautiful connection with um, bishop's poem and you know the idea of losing cities again i get the sense that you could move house what shan is trying to nail down is what you need to put in the house in any place but it doesn't have to be the same one you know you could take it with you and again it's that thing that i think we talked about a little in the last podcast about you take your joy with you and there can be people who are endlessly blaming that the city that they live in or or in my case possibly even the weather or whatever but in fact i think you are who you are wherever you land you know there are circumstances which make you happier but i don't think anything you carry with you is going to make you happier i'm definitely a better version of myself in the sunshine <laughs> <laughs> I thought that yesterday because it was really cloudy in the morning and I remember thinking, gosh, I'm so tired. You know, I feel tired today after the birthday celebrations and it must just be, you know, kind of a come down after all that cooking. And then the sun came out and I suddenly thought, gosh, I feel better now. What's happened? <laughs> I realized it was literally the sun come out. And after we sat in the garden, I remember thinking, gosh, I feel so much more enlivened. And I don't think it's of course it was chatting to you, Claire. I was going to say, um, was it not my company? It was definitely your company. It wasn't the caffeine since I didn't get to drink the cup of tea. But I think a lot of it is the sunshine. But yeah, I do think Bishop's right that I think you can lose almost anything. But I'm not convinced about the end there. It sounds like her voice has changed. And I love the fact that it's four lines, so it takes her longer to convince herself even if it, or us, you know. And I'm not sure she's done it, which is, which is lovely as well. So. That's the joy of the piece, isn't it? Mm, it is. think that's all from us today yeah just really thanks very much to shan for her wonderful piece and i'm looking forward to digging deeper into our pile of new writing unbound commissions such a joy they're sitting on my desk at the moment and uh, every so often i just pick up one and have have a little read and very much looking forward to sharing them on podcasts over the next few weeks yeah and you can find this week's and last week's on our website, which is www.openbookreading.com in the Unbound section, which has all the old newsletters and pieces, but particularly these, these commissions will sit there over this period. Thanks so much for having us in your ears this week. We look forward to chatting with each other and you soon. Bye.